0: Welcome to WODcast. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. From a very young age, Jennifer Knowles developed a passion for fine dining and wine. After majoring in chemistry at Syracuse University, she moved to San Francisco so she could take a course in enology at UC Davis. Her career has been on an upward trajectory ever since. She's worked with a who's who of people in the wine and restaurant industry and has passed Well, not only passed, but in one case crushed, some of the most difficult exams for a sommelier. After helping to open Requin at the Wharf on the waterfront in D.C., she was eventually named general manager and beverage director of Mirabelle, an elegant restaurant near the White House that is winning rave reviews. We're excited to talk with Jennifer about her own career and what advice she would give other women who aspire to careers in the restaurant industry. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us here today.
1: Oh, I greatly appreciate you having me on.
0: Let's talk about your very first taste of wine, which happened accidentally, I understand, and at a very young age. <laughs> Do you remember that <laughs> yes, first it
1: did. Uh I was about eight years old. And uh, my parents were wine drinkers, however, they were (laughs) wine drinkers of a certain kind in that my mom drank uh, Almaden Chablis uh, out of the box, and my dad drank Carl Rossi Hardy Burgundy from the jug. So his jug was always in the closet, in the pantry, but the Chablis, of course, was always in the fridge, and I would see my mom take dips of wine from it, and I didn't know that it was wine, I just knew it was something she enjoyed drinking, so... One day I decided to try it and I was, kind of did it on the fly, so I put my mouth underneath the spigot and I pushed up on it. And my mouth filled with wine, and I threw up. So it, was, uh, it was definitely uh, not the, um, you know, smelling an old Bordeaux and being able to talk about the uh, the, the aromas and the flavors at a young age. It was uh, it was a shock, to say the least. And it was quite a while before I, uh, almost 10 years before I started uh, tasting wine again.
0: Oh, that's so funny. Well, when you were a teenager, you took a summer job working on Boston's South Shore, at a retreat for Jesuit priests and you found that they were interested in food and drink. and I found that so interesting because we don't think of priests as foodies or wine lovers, especially because the religious life often demands, you know, being a simple life and sacrificing. Were you surprised right.
1: about that? Well, it was it was such a fascinating job and one that Um, I fell into because I had been babysitting uh, for the same family for for many years, and I wanted to do some things during the week. And uh, one of my best friends uh, in high school, uh, Kate Murray, her dad, sat on the board of BC, and and we wanted a a summer job. But, of course, we wanted something that was going to be appropriate for a 13-year-old girl who wanted to go hang out at the beach and things like that. And the Bellamine House, which is the Jesuit uh, priesthood there, brotherhood there, um, it's their retreat for, for, just for the summer. Um, they do do some feasts there during the year, which I'll kind of touch on later, but um, during the summer, all the different brothers from the universities, uh, from the Jesuit universities around New England, come and spend either the whole summer there, or a week, or a few weeks, um, and then they, they have retreat meetings and things like that, but there are certain brothers who are there every year, all summer long, and it is a stunningly gorgeous property. It is a beautiful big mansion that overlooks uh, the entrance to Cohasset Harbor where I grew up. They have a swimming pool and a hot tub, which many people tended to use to their own devices uh, late in the evening when the brothers went to bed. But um, that's how most people know of the Bellamy House, is going pool hopping or something. But for me, we were offered the uh, ability to have a, a job there where it was split into two uh, two times during the day. So we would show up at 10 in the morning, and we would do their breakfast dishes. So they would serve themselves breakfast. Big, big kitchen, um, big open kitchen, and uh, lots of places for delicious food to be hidden around. So we would wash their breakfast dishes. Then we would set up a buffet for lunch. Then we would break down lunch, and uh, we'd have two and a half, three hours off. So we'd go to the beach, come back. And when we came back at four, my job uh, from the time I started there was to set up their bar for happy hour. And it was like just a credenza, but it opened up and all the all the bottles would sit underneath. And so being the kind of a eight- type of person I am. I wanted to make the bottles look all beautiful and put the colors near each other and things like that. And slowly as the brothers got to know me, um, they would start telling me how I should have been grouping things, how, you know, the Irish whiskey should have all been here and the gin should have all been there. And so I, you know, naturally just was kind of, well, what's the difference between them? And of course, Everybody has their propensity for whatever spirit they enjoy, and so one person might have loved, you know, Canadian Club, and someone else loved Bombay, and what's the difference between Bombay and Bombay Sapphire, and as the years progressed, I worked there for five, six summers. Wow. And so as uh, as it progressed, of course, I learned more and more and more about, um, about the spirit side and the food side, um, and I basically became the de facto sous chef for uh, their chef, Debbie, who was, uh, she trained at the Cordon Bleu in Paris. Um, all of their rooms were as bare bones, as you can imagine. It was a sink, a bed, and a bureau. But what they really got to enjoy was the culinary and the, uh, the enophile side of uh, of life. So they were true gourmands, gourmands. Mm-hmm. And there would be different feasts throughout the summer and throughout the year. Um, And as I learned more and more at Debbie's side, I would end up coming to help prep. Um, and I learned how to do, you know, everything from brunoising to turn root vegetables, um, sharpening knives and every type of cooking you can imagine. But I was, I was so hooked by it because it was this idea of like, well, why does this chicken taste so much different than anyone else's chicken? What have you done to this fish that makes it taste so much different? And it was the, uh, cause this is in the, um, this is in the mid eighties. So this is nineteen eighty eight is when I started there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I got so enthralled by the preparation techniques and just everything that went into cooking. I've never liked baking. I don't like the specificity of it. I don't like to measure. I don't like recipes. I just want to cook. But that's what I got to do with her is I started to get to experiment. And, you know, the first time I made my own fruit tart and things like that, you know, it was so prideful. Um, and it was so exciting, too, and learning about leeks and shallots and fresh cracked pepper and, you know, all of these different opponents that are so imperative to why food cooked with that amount of time and knowledge tastes different than, you know, just roasting a chicken at home. Um, we now obviously have the Internet and the benefit of TV and things that now home cooks know all that and have learned all that. But on the south shore of Boston and New England and, you know, the mid-80s, that was not, there were there were not shallots in people's fridges. I'd never even seen an avocado. Um you know it was it was that time of, of culinary uh, inexpertise, I guess you would say.
0: And still so so learning funny. that was it's, great. It's funny to think back to those times when uh, we weren't as food savvy as we are now.
1: Oh, it is, and especially because I start. So I transferred. So I wanted to uh, start working in restaurants because I got. And I got really. Um, I really enjoyed the service aspect of it. I loved being out on the floor, talking to the brothers, describing the food, and it's food that I had helped make. So I was intimately. Um, intimately connected to what they were eating mm-hmm. and so getting to talk to them about you know how we prepared the food and everything else it just I was hooked yeah. and so um I applied at a restaurant down the street from my house a chart house um it was right on the water in class at harbor and uh they started me as a hostess because I had no server experience um and within three weeks I was put on the floor as a server because I not only knew more about food preparation and um Ingredients than any of the servers, but also than a lot of the people in the kitchen. <laughs> I, knew, I knew every liquor on the bar pretty much. I knew how to make you know every type of cocktail. So I, I there wasn't a lot of training necessary for me. So they uh, they moved me very quickly into a server position, and that's where it all started.
0: So now you want a scholarship to Syracuse University to study chemistry. Is that useful to you now, even?
1: It certainly does come in. I mean, I think also because chemistry was something that I understood. Um, Physics was, again, just like I don't like pastry, physics was not my thing. Mm -hmm. And it's something that when you look at the two different sides between chemistry and and physics, there's a a big delineation between the two, and a lot of it has to do with steadfast rule versus extrapolation. Um, And I think that's where having the the background knowledge of chemistry is important for you know fermentation and all of the different processes that go on during wine making but what i learned more so was that it wasn't as much the chemical side as it was the biological side mm-hmm. that i loved biology and i really excelled in biology as well and something about that became very clear because you know when you start learning about wine obviously you're learning about winemaking techniques and regions and things like that. But what really gets you to sink your claws in normally that when you speak to most people is the fact that wine embodies so many parts of our life. Law, religion, geography, cartography, geology, you know, farming, agriculture. It's just it's 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 in a myriad of different parts of everyday life that we kind of just stroll through. That wine is is part of because again, it, it's a it's it's a fruit, right. and it's you know it's farming. And there's a lot more people getting back to that mentality of farming than there you know than there were during the '90s and you know early 2000s. But when you come down to it, that's what it is. And mm-hmm. so learning, I don't want to say learning, but I say embracing. that's one of the most important parts about wine becomes even more uh, special and and more valuable than the chemical side.
0: Then you decided to leave Syracuse and transfer. Can you tell us what was behind that decision?
1: Yeah, so um, when I first got to Syracuse I um, I, I was planning on a double major in environmental chemistry and environmental law And the environmental side of the uh, program would be done at the State University of New York. Um, SUNY always had their campuses on private uh, universities because the SUNY kids could pay state tuition but take their liberal arts classes at the private institutions. Mm -hmm. And then the private institution kids, of course, paid a much higher price, but um, got to take their secondary classes if they wanted to at SUNY. And my freshman year, a new dean was hired. And unfortunately, he dissolved that relationship because, as you can imagine, it's a, a very large expenditure on the, uh, on the Syracuse side. And so by the end of my sophomore year, um, what my plans had been had, uh, had, had also dissolved. So there was going to be a long hullabaloo about trying to get everybody grandfathered in and stuff like that. But what I, what I had discovered by the end of my sophomore year is that I did not want to do straight chemistry. That was not what my what, where my passion lied. And it, it wasn't what I really, what I was enjoying. Um, I had been working in restaurants and bars um, starting the beginning of my sophomore year. And during my junior year, while I was trying to figure out what to do, um, part of it also is that my scholarships were tied directly to chemistry. So if I decided to deviate from chemistry, I was going to have to take on the entirety of my tuition. So I spoke to my parents about it, and I... Waited tables and bartended and things like that, and just realized that I loved that, that I I was good at it, and that I and that people liked me, that mm-hmm. they reacted well to me, and I had known that from working, you know, at the chart house. And but it was it was becoming clear that I was more excited to go to work than I was to go to class. So uh, I talked <laughs> to my parents and I said, you know, I I really don't want to just go back to school and have this giant. Um, Loan to pay back and and not know what I'm doing with it. I don't want to do it just for the sake of doing it. And they said, all right. So I went home and I started working at a restaurant uh, called Fire King and um, in the Eat Well Group, which is fairly well known in the South Shore uh, in Hingham. And I, the manager that I was working with, was a budding enophile as well. He actually was planning to open his own wine shop. So we ended up talking, and I had uh, one of my. I got the job because one of my very close friends. Um, was a, was the executive sous chef there, and he had given me his CIA book, his uh, Culinary Institute of America book, and there's a wine book that goes with it that's super thick, it's like 500 pages. And I you know, primarily was really interested in food technique. It's not that I wanted to be in the kitchen, but I just loved the technique behind it. Um, and then I got hooked on the wine side, and when I plowed through that CIA book, I was like, this is, this is what I want to do this is, I want to be, I, at first I had decided I was going to be a wine consultant and my parents would say, what is that? And I'd say, I, I have no idea, but I'm sure there is one. <laughs> it has to be there. So my mom, um, my mom took it upon herself to get me a subscription to Wine Spectator. And, uh, I started reading Wine Spectator and hearing about these flying winemakers like Michelle Roland who were flying around the world helping with wine. And I thought, well, if I could go learn to make wine, then maybe this is what I could do. Mm. So, with my chemical, with my chemistry background, my intention was to. So, two of my best friends uh, decided that before they, you know, moved on to the world of family and marriage and things, they wanted to uh, move out to California because they thought romantically they would always regret not doing it. They were a couple years older than me, so I said um, they told me the. They told me their intention, and I said, well, can I come? And they were like, well, that was, the course. that was the whole idea. We're going to go without you. So at that point, I thought, you know, I started doing research and finding out, you know, different areas, different colleges that focused on that. It was a lot of phone calls because, of course, there was no Internet at this time. So it was really, you know, literally going to the library and trying to, you know, research where these schools were and talking to uh, guidance counselors and things and seeing where they recommended people Um And I heard about the analogy program at UC Davis, and so my intention was to go to San Francisco, spend a year there, and try to get residency working in restaurants, and then I would, um, and then I would transfer to UC Davis. And throughout this time, I had been, you know, from the time I was young, I was babysitting, and in college, I was a preschool teacher, and then um, when I moved home from college, I was a preschool teacher and a nanny. So I'd always kind of had this duality in my life, where, you know, during the day, I was working with kids and taking care of them, and then at night I would go and you know, tell people at my tables to use their words and things like that, <laughs> it didn't always turn so well. But what it did teach me, and this is something that I realized later on, it taught me so much patience, because going from dealing with two-and-a-half and, and three-year-olds all day long to dealing with adults <laughs> was like... You know, it, it was like going from riding a track bike to a tricycle. It was so right. easy. You are just like, oh, this is the easiest thing. No problem. Oh, the, I know the answer to all these questions where who knows what the two-and-a-half-and-three-year-olds are going to ask me. You know,
0: right.
1: you're often speechless by their questions. So that was really a great uh, that was really a great help in me gaining my confidence on the floor. Um, and when I worked at the Chart House uh, some distributors would come in and they would do wine tastings for the staff and at that time, you know, most of the staff was in their mid twenties, early thirties and I was seventeen, eighteen years old. And so they would just be drinking and I was told, you know, that I could I could participate as long as I would spit the wine. And for a kid who is, you know, 17 years old, was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get drunk at work. This is the coolest thing ever. Um, but I realized very early on that, I mean, I loved, I, I enjoyed wine. I loved drinking wine. But it wasn't like, you know, watching people down a glass of wine like you would a beer or something was not uh, enviable at all. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I realized is that I could smell a lot of stuff. I had a sense memory. And that's what I came to understand is that part of, you know, your palate is really defined by your nose. You're only tasting sweet, salty, bitter, acidic, and umami. The hundreds of thousands of other things that you taste, so to speak, uh, you're actually smelling. So, wow. And I was able to put together those smells with a memory, and that's really what helps define things like blind tasting and, you know, the continuation of, uh, of your growth with your palate and with your nose is having the ability to say, like, oh, my gosh, that wine I just tasted, it was like huckleberries. And then that wine gets brought up again at some point. And you're like, I know what this is. Oh, wow, that has that huckleberry note to it. And that's how you start building, you know, your memory bank when it comes to when it comes to tasting. So that was really exciting because I didn't understand in any way why the wine smelled like that. You know, he asked me what my favorite fruits were, and I said peaches and cherries. And he's like, oh, you know, what's your favorite flower? And I love lilacs. And then he asked me what, you know, do you like bacon? Do you like black pepper? And I was like, well, you know, who doesn't? And so the next time he came in, he brought me a bottle of Vignette from uh, Gigal. He brought me a Condriou. And then he brought a bottle of Syrah uh, from Gigala a Corotie. And so I'm smelling these wines and i was like, how did they get, where are the peaches? Like, I don't understand why this is clear. Mm. I don't, how did they strain the peaches out of this? He's like, no, no, you're not getting this. There are no peaches in it. And I, I literally said there, that can't, that can't be, can't be the case. Cannot be the case. There has to be peaches. They have to have mixed this with peaches somehow. And the same thing with the coat roti. You know, it's like, why, why isn't there bacon fat floating in my wine right now? Where are the peppercorns? And, for someone, you know, 17 years old to be smelling these things that you were told were going to be in the wine, and then they are, I mean, I, that's it. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. How does grape juice smell like this?
0: That's uh, Jennifer, that is so fascinating. And, and it also, I think, helped you develop the vocabulary you needed to describe the various wines.
1: Without a doubt. And that's something that the background working at the Bellamine was so integral for, because You know, at that point, there weren't a lot of people who knew what all of these different aromas and flavors were. You know, having the ability to discern between, um, you know, lemon pith, lemon peel, candied lemon, roasted lemon, you know, was it a Meyer lemon? Is it a key lime? Is it a regular lime? Is it kefir lime leaf? Is it, you know, an orange? I mean, there were so many things that I was so in tuned with in the kitchen at the Bellamine that it was... You know, I, I was smelling and tasting everything because that's what Debbie said. You know, you have to see the ripeness of everything. So tasting roasted apples versus unripe apples versus, you know, apple skin, apple peel, what does this yellow, red, or green apple taste like side by side? Because I would ask questions. You know, why are we using Granny Smith apples in the apple pie? And she'd say, okay, well, let's use, you know, like an overripe Macintosh and see what that tasted like. Mm-hmm. And it would not be delicious because there was no acidity there. Yeah. So I also learned the. I learned the incredibly important balance of acidity salinity fat um, all of those different components in cooking that become so important when you're when you're discerning balanced wine
0: hmm so now t- tell me about the uh, in- introductory exam with uh, the court masters sommeliers because you tied you had the highest score out of a hundred students what is that exam like I mean did all of this um,
1: and, well, this know. was at the beginning of um, really the the first leap of the court of master sommeliers, where there was uh, a new breed of, of younger server and sommelier that was looking that was normally being mentored by a master sommelier. That court not only wanted to make their mentor proud, but wanted to be part of that part of that arena and part of that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, back when I took the exam. For the first time, there are only three parts. There was the introductory, which was like you know graduating from middle school, um, the advanced, which was like graduating from college, and then uh, the masters, which is like getting your PhD and, and any other uh, you know certification you can think of. So the jumps from one to the next were massive. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's broken into multiple parts. So now there's the introductory certified, you have to take an advanced level course before you even get to take the advanced, Mm -hmm. then you go to the master's and you have to pass theory before you can even go into service and tasting. So they've really changed the model of it. But back when I was taking it, it was an enormous amount of information from one to the next. Um, But my uh, my first mentor, Carla Kilgore, who I had my first sommelier position with at a restaurant called Lapis, um, she had taken the test and had actually uh, gotten the highest score as well. And after 9-11, she was one of those people who said, I just, I need to be with my family. I have to be with the people I love. You know, it really shook her. So she moved up to Seattle, uh, and I took over the wine director position at very, you know, I think it was 24, 25 at that time, maybe 25. So I was running the beverage program because I knew all about the bar, and then I was running wine program. Um, and, this was, and this was at what restaurant? A restaurant called Lapis.
0: Lapis, Okay.
1: Yeah, it's where Butterfly is in San Francisco now. Pier Thirty Three. Okay. Um, it was uh, Safi, uh, Sheila, and Safi Zaki. Sheila was the CFO of Cisco Systems. Right. Um, and her husband, uh, Safi, was is uh, was is um, uh, Lebanese, and mm-hmm. so there was a lot of um, amazing Lebanese wine, specifically Musar, which is such a cult, extraordinary wine that I had this crazy. Understanding and experience with so early on. Um, But it was also a scenario where I really got to be, I don't want to say involved in the kitchen, but there was the understanding that my knowledge of what went on in the kitchen was really beneficial to being a liaison between the kitchen and the front of the house. Mm -hmm. And that's really where I began to understand how integral having that relationship was. And not only how integral it was, how exciting and how fulfilling it was. It was so wonderful to be the person who could talk to anybody in the restaurant. And when she had passed, she was, you know, of course, super excited. And I said, well, I want to do that, too. And, um... So I, you know, I start. and this, again, this is a time when there is no internet, so you're just buying books, you know, you're, uh, just, anytime I flew back to Boston, I would have like a North Face heavy duty camping backpack filled with 50 or 60 pounds of books. And that was my life for, you know, my goodness, five or six years until we really had more uh, connectivity and accessibility to the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what we were doing was rewriting books, basically, you know, mm-hmm. we, were, we were studying the books and then taking notes and rewriting them in our own notes. Um, but I had decided I wanted to take the test, and uh, I studied. I, I was I was reading some more professorial books, um, Oz Clark's books and things, James Robinson's books, which now are just some of the most unbelievable learning tools you can have. But for a beginner, there were just a lot of words I didn't know, and I was spending more time looking up the words I didn't know than actually learning what I did. Mm-hmm. So, um, a uh, my boyfriend at the time uh, was a co-owner of a cigar bar in San Francisco, and one of his regular guests uh, knew I was. We had become very close, and he knew that I was studying for this exam. So he bought me Karen McNeil's book and the Wine Bible, and mm-hmm. I used that specifically to study. But that's what I used. Mm-hmm. I read it cover to cover. I took all of my notes from it. I did all my note cards from it. And she spoke in such an open way. She spoke in a way that was so understandable. And she would make she would make connections with phrases that were you, you could you could visualize so strongly, you know, she would say, Things like um, German uh, California Chardonnay is like a woman wearing black opaque stockings. You can hardly even see the shape of her legs, let alone you know the color of her skin. Where German Riesling is so lithe and lean and bright that it's like a woman wearing the sheerest uh, the sheerest stockings and being able to see every curvature of her of the muscles of her calf. And you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, Chardonnay has all this you know oak and malactic and it is kind of covered up. And Riesling doesn't have any of that. So it was, it, was, it was a fascinating and intriguing book to have. But it also really put together so many of the basic ideas that can be hard to grasp when you're dealing with more intense, at that point, more intensive um, books. Um, the way that she described things were, they were just understandable. Mm -hmm. So I I utilized that and I uh, tied for the highest score. And of course I'm sitting in the room and they're calling every, you know, the hundred people and they're calling everybody's name and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I I mean, I'm sure that all I did was like miss one question and every question is just one off and if I can just tell them and if they can just show me my test, I can prove to them that I knew what I was doing and I must've just missed one question and I'm, you know, torturing myself and then they announced the two highest scores, it's myself and uh, my good friend, Chris Blanchard, who's uh, now a Master sommelier himself. Um, and it was, you know, it was, of course it was very pride-inducing, it was very exciting, but I also, you know, once, once they go through the process of, you know, talking about the intro exam, they start telling you what's necessary to prepare for the advanced exam. And I realized I was so far out of my league that, you know, the things that I was, the, the, the first step I had taken was a pretty big step But the next step was gigantic, Um, and so I talked to a couple different master sommeliers who were really excited for me to move forward and very supportive. Uh, Damon Ornowski from the beginning and Evan Goldstein were were just really wonderful supporters of wanting me to move forward, and so I just said, you know, well, what do I do? And they said, well, you know, if you're going to do anything and you want to follow the course, then you go work with Larry Stone. And, of course, I knew who Larry still was. I had, I had been in his presence a couple times, but I had never worked up the courage to introduce myself. And um, I said, all right. And at that point, I was, um, I was making, you know, six figures as a 25-year-old running these two programs. And uh, I went to Rubicon for the interview, not knowing what to expect. And Larry never hired a sommelier off the street, ever. You have to start as a runner or a busser or a server or a bartender. Uh, even Raj Parr, you know, started as a as a food runner there. Because for Larry, you have to prove that hospitality is your focus, mm-hmm. and you have to prove that the guest is your focus. That you're not there to talk about wine. That's a that's a side that's a side piece of what your job is. That you are there specifically for the guest and the camaraderie of the team. And if he doesn't see that, then you're not going to get your name on the wine list.
0: So and that, and that I, of course, Jennifer, was something that you had really been working on and all of these years, no matter where you were working or what you were doing.
1: Exactly. And it was a mentality that just felt so, it, it was very exciting. It, it felt it, I felt very confident that I could fulfill that. Mm -hmm. I felt very confident with my background and my knowledge. And I had never, you know, I tried to never be showy. Um, Carla Kilgore, my mentor, she was very humble and laid back and knew so much. She does know so much. Um, But she was just always the one that everybody wanted to see and bring wine to, and like, even if they knew she wasn't going to buy this, you know, $500 bottle of wine, at the end of the day, they would want her to come and taste wine with her, mm-hmm. and so I learned, you know, to focus my palate by tasting with her, and we had a, you know, we had a wine list with 250 wines on it, she had a description for every single wine, and what so when I took over the, the program, program
0: was, she at, was she at
1: Rubicon? That was at Lapis. Ah, okay. So that was before Rubicon, yeah.
0: So Rubicon, is that in San Francisco also?
1: It was, yeah. Okay. Uh, Rubicon closed in 2006. Okay. 2006, 2000, or 2007. I was there from 2001 to 2006. They must have closed in 2007. Okay. Um, and I worked half the week at Rubicon and then half the week at a restaurant called Farallon. Um, so I had a, a dual mentorship because I worked with Larry at, uh, Rubicon, at Rubicon and my other mentor, Peter Palmer, at Farallon. And they were two. They, they were definitely yin and yang in terms of their personalities. And, and, you know, Pete never tested. He's a hiker. He's an outdoorsman. He loves, you know, he's just such an affable Amiable, funny, extraordinary guy. Now, Larry is affable and amiable and funny as well, but he also had focused his life on, on a lot of the, not only the court, but a lot of other testings. And mm-hmm. it was something for, for him that he had become such a pillar and a beacon in the master sommelier community that people wouldn't, you know, there were, there were many people that wouldn't even ever sit for the test unless they came and did a tasting with Larry and went through a service and things like that. So, um, we built a great camaraderie there, um, two people that became my, my, my best friends, Tony Chong, Kyle Boatwright, um, Kyle was, a, uh, his cellar master, and, you know, within a couple weeks, I got put on the, on the wine, I got my name on the wine list, and, you know, coming to tastings every week, and we had tastings at Rubicon that, you know, they're wines that not only, could no one afford anymore, but they're wines that you would barely ever even see anymore unless you were at auction. Larry was so generous and kind with the wines from his own cellar uh, and was just really dedicated to us learning as much as we possibly could about wine during our tastings so that we had time to communicate with the guests and we could truly listen to what they wanted. And, you know, one of his one of his big things was, you know, let's say that we were tasting, you know, I don't know, uh, an off-dry Riesling from Alsace, like Weinbach, Cuvée Catherine Lundi, and everybody's crazy for it. Everybody loves it. It's acidic mm-hmm. and it's amazing. It's a and there's, you know, a little residual sugar and blah, blah, blah. And we'd all be geeking out about it. And what he would say, you know, towards the end is, remember, if you go on the floor tonight and sell this wine, it better not be to the person who's asking for cake bread chardonnay. It better all not be for the right. person who's asking for duckhorn sauvignon blanc. This is not your opportunity to show someone what you know. So. This is your opportunity to listen to what they want.
0: Wow.
1: And okay. that became such a pillar of what we tried to do. And what I, obviously what I still do every day, and what I talk to people who work with me all the time, is that we learn more from listening to the guests than we ever will from telling the guests what we know. So and we, it's something that we...
0: Jennifer, let's talk about some of your awards. Uh, you were Star Chefs New World Rising Star Sommelier. Uh, you were also named the best sommelier by the International Academy of Gastronomy and uh, the 2013 Golden Goblet Award by the Association yeah. of Women's Chefs and Tours. What, what do all of these awards mean to you? I mean, um, they, they must put you on, you know, be further validation of, uh, you know, your knowledge, your expertise and everything you've accomplished.
1: Um, I mean, I I like to think of it more that they are acknowledgments of the care that I have for the guests Mm -hmm. and the care that I have for my staff. Um, You know, at the time when I was, when when those awards were were graciously uh, bestowed upon me, you know, my focus was strictly, not strictly, but was predominantly wine, meaning that I was, you know, reading a ton about wine at the time and still studying and, um, I mean, I still study, but I was studying specifically for quarter of masternays, exams, and things of that. So a lot of my time was taken by studying, Mm -hmm. but I was still trying to focus as much energy as I could on the floor as, you know, somebody who practices and adores and loves hospitality. Um, I think the the Star Chef one was probably the coolest because um, John Reagan, who uh, now works for Union Square Hospitality Group um, and had... uh, Relaunched Eleven Madison Park with Daniel Hum before moving on. Um, he and Daniel worked together at Canton Place, and Daniel was a rising star chef, and uh, John was uh, the, the old world rising star som. But it was the first year they'd ever done the category um, because I was I, I was actually at Restaurant Michael Mina with my my best friend Casper, who I'd met at Rubicon as well, who was working there. And I got a call from Larry asking if I could come over to Rubicon. It was my night off. And I said, yeah, I can come by. And he said, well, there's, you know, a woman here from Starship, uh, Antoinette Bruno, and she'd like to talk to you about being a sommelier here. And I said, yeah, I'm I'm happy to do it. And so I sat down with Antoinette and her assistant, and um, I saw the list very, very uh, briefly and very uh, shortly into the the conversation. So it was people like John Reagan and Emily Wines and, you know, people have become master sommeliers and, and, you know were are slightly older than me, but um, just pinnacles of the wine, you know, the sommelier industry in San Francisco, um, and I just thought, you know, I'm a I'm a waitress slash sommelier at Rubicon. What? You know, there's no way anybody's going to choose me. So we just sat and talked for about two hours, and at the end of it, she just was like, "That was unbelievable." You know, just thank you for taking the time. And we just had a great time. We just Mm -hmm. sat and talked, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about anything because there, it never occurred to me that I had a chance. So I just was me. Mm-hmm. And she called the next day and said, for the first time ever, we're going to do a, a double category that will now continue forward. And you've created it, and it's now the New World and Old World Sommeliers. Wow. That's,
0: that's
1: so pretty, that was that's really cool. cool. <laughs> pretty cool.
0: So back on the East Coast at one point, um, you were at the Inn at Little Washington, which has two Michelin stars. and Now they have three. Ah, they just really? got their third. Oh, boy. Okay. And they are constantly on this uh, here in, in D.C., Uh, What stands out in your mind about your time
1: there? It was the continuation of what Larry was so adamant about, and not only adamant about, but what he practiced so truly himself. You know, the amount of time he would spend at a table speaking to a guest who wanted, who you know, who just couldn't believe that Larry Stone was talking to them about, you know, a bottle of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc or whatever it is. It was the fact that anybody had entrance. To a conversation with Larry Stone, if they were interested, and took the chance to say hello, mm-hmm. um, and with working with Patrick O'Connell was really so similar. And
0: Patrick um,
1: O'Connell is Patrick O'Connell is the, is the owner and proprietor of the in mm-hmm. little and the chef of the in a little Washington. Yeah. And so his, his model is not only purely hospitality driven, but it is also about making sure that anybody who takes the time to drive out to the inner little Washington, whether it's five minutes from their house or an hour and a half from D.C., that they know that they are special regardless of how much they spend or where they came from or what they drove or anything else, that once you have walked into the doors of the inn, you are exactly where you belong mm-hmm. and that we will do anything in our power to ensure that you always stay connected to feeling part of the ride that is being at the inn. And there was, shortly after I started, I think I'd been there for a few months, I had secured a a champagne that I was getting direct imported. Uh, We were the only people in the country that had it. And we had some guests who had been saving. you know, this is the story that you hear so many times. You know, we've been saving for 10 years. We've been saving for 20 years. We've been saving for five years. After our wedding, we decided this would be what we did for our 10th anniversary, things like that. So you had people that were celebrating monumental occasions and often came in fairly intimidated because they didn't know what to expect. They thought that people were going to be highfalutin and kind of brusque and, you know, off Stanish And instead they walked into this room of warmth and smiles and kindness and happiness uh, because that wasn't, that wasn't expected. That was demanded. That was who you were, regardless of what was going on that day. So I had a couple who have been saving for about 15 years to come back for their anniversary and they loved the champagne and they wanted it. They just couldn't get over the fact that I wasn't sold anywhere. And I walked into the kitchen and I went up to Patrick and I said, chef, you know, I told him the story. I said, is there any chance I could put a bottle in their room? And he said, Jennifer, why would you even bother asking me that question? It should have already been done. <laughs> and I was like, I'm home. I am home. Wow. And I got to do that multiple times with people, you know, whether it was a bottle of Pinot Noir or a bottle of dessert wine or, you know, just a thank you card for being so wonderful during the evening, you know, that I was so thankful to get to, to serve them and how they had changed my evening. You know, you were constantly expected to and given the – the entrance to be as kind and hospitable as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a a gentleman who I, uh, when I left it, when I was at the inn, he had come in, and I put a bottle of a a Pinot Noir called Dusky Goose in his room. Um, They had loved it, and I got the last of the vintage. And uh, when I moved into the city from the inn, I was working at the Jefferson Hotel as the wine director, and my very first week, he walked in with his wife with that bottle of wine. Wow. And he put it down on the table and he said, I have been waiting two years to drink this bottle of wine with you. And I burst into tears. Oh I goodness. said, it's even making me tear up now. I was like, this is everything. This is what, you know, this is it. This is what you, what you it is, it is the absolute dream of what you can accomplish if you if you care the way that Patrick and Larry and Peter and Carla and all the amazing people I have worked with if you care the way that they've cared and the way that they've, you know, mentored people to care, it, it, it changes people's lives with with no with no real, with no thought at all. It's just mm-hmm. showing kindness when people don't expect to be shown it.
0: So now, Jennifer, you are the uh, G- general manager and the beverage director at Mirabelle. So, tell me when you interview people to work at the restaurant. Um, you've had all of these great mentors, you've had this great career up until now, what do you look for when you're interviewing people to work there?
1: Um, You know, I look for kindness. I I don't, you know, obviously a great resume is a a great start, (laughs) it gets attention, but I also want to have people who... Show that they are not only excited about the opportunity to work here, but excited to take care of the guests and what they're and what they're the freedom they're given to make the guests happy. Um, You know, I do have very high expectations and I set that forth very, very early on Um, during training. You know, when, when we opened the restaurant the first time and then when we relaunched the second time, I am as upfront honest and forthright about what my expectations will be and that they will not wane. Mm
0: -hmm. That
1: we are here for the guests. We are here to support each other. We are here to be a team front of the house and back of the house. And that we are here to show the same kindness and hospitality to each other as we are to our guests. And that that takes an enormous amount of confidence. But in order to be confident, you have to be knowledgeable you have to be genuine, you have to be kind, and without those, you can't be confident because you're going to be at a table thinking about what you don't know or you're going to be thinking about you know what your actions are versus just immersing yourself in the guest. And not only that, but that asking the guest how they feel can sometimes be an umbrage, and that's, that's what Patrick really... Kind of taught us more than anything is that you have these people who have traveled all this way to come to the end, and the first thing you do is bombard them with a question like, "How are you?" Mm-hmm. And you have no idea they could have, caught, could have gotten caught in traffic, someone might have passed away, they could have gotten in a fight. Like you have no idea. And so instead of trying to fall back on habits like just immediately asking how somebody is, let's just warm, let's just welcome them warmly, allow people to settle in, and then the connection that is created is so much more natural,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's not forced. You're not forcing somebody to tell you how they are, and they don't have to then be forced to ask you. Um, you know, we welcome the guests warmly, and we never assume. And that's something that I think has become integral in my style of service that I, that I, uh, that I teach is that it's as simple as something like iced tea. Um, I call it the iced tea test, which is, you know, somebody orders iced tea, and you say, would you like a lemon? Some people don't want lemon. Mm -hmm. You ask if you would like simple syrup or sweetener. Then you bring them the simple syrup or the sweetener. You ask if they'd like a straw, because some people don't want straws, even if they're paper. Mm -hmm. So when we first opened, there was a gentleman who I had known from the inn and who had then followed me to the Jefferson and come back. And the very first one she came in, he was asked those questions. And he called me over and with the most, like, excited, booming voice said, no one has ever asked me if I want a lemon because he hates lemon. <laughs> Lemons, yeah. And so every time he orders iced tea, he says, I don't want lemon. And he said 75% of the time they still bring him lemon because it is an automatic response to iced tea. Right,
0: right.
1: He doesn't take any sweetener, but yet they bring a sugar caddy and simple syrup and all this other stuff. He said, I just want tea in a glass. So Jennifer, and he was
0: how did you go about Bringing together the uh, wine list for Mirabelle. What, what do you focus on?
1: Country, price, vintage? How does that work? Well, right now we focus on French varieties. So mm-hmm. originally, when we opened, we focused on American and French varieties. I'm sorry, uh, uh, United States and France, mm-hmm. um, but French varieties. Uh, now with the relaunch, we're we're doing the same but uh, expanding it globally. So we're slowly moving into uh, some other um, some other countries. Um, Chile, uh, I'm really excited about a lot of the, the wines from Chile right now, especially the old vine, Carignans, uh, from the Malway Valley and the Central Valley. Um, but a lot of the other old bush-trained vines, all the, you know, Carbiniers and old, old, old Malbec, people don't all, all, you know, people rarely think of Malbec in Chile. It's always an Argentinian thing, but there's some very, very old Malbec vines there. Um, I, I, pu- I take it all into account, but what I take into account more than anything is, um, you know, what are the guests going to like? Of course, I don't want to put wines on the list that clash with the food, but when you're thinking about wines by the bottle, there are plenty of people that want to have a big Cabernet with halibut. And there's never a time that myself nor anyone who works in my employee will dissuade them differently. Mm-hmm. If they ask for a recommendation, we can certainly let them know a recommendation. But if they say, I don't drink white wine, I want red wine, what's the best red wine with this white wine poached fish, you know, The recommendation is drink whatever you like. Mm -hmm. I want you to have, you know, you don't have to have a bite and a sip. And so I think about wines by the glass differently than wine by the bottle. Wine by the glass, um, every wine by the glass is chosen for a dish on the menu. Sometimes peppered in with uh, a couple glasses that I think will just be nice to sip on at the bar, but they're always wines that, across the board, will match with dishes and, and in varied prices.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, having two different Bordeaux, I have uh, a well, i have three different Bordeaux right now. I have a a, a Cabernet Merlot blend uh, from the Cote de Borg. That's uh, thirteen dollars a glass, twelve dollars a glass from Chateau Robert. Then I have the Abbé de Fuisal Cabernet uh, Merlot blend from Pessac Lanon, a more well known commune in Bordeaux. That's $21. Um, and then we have a, a high end wine, um, the uh, Chateau Cruzal Hollande Pomerol, 100% Merlot 2009, so some, some time to it, and that's $35. So looking to really offer people the opportunity to drink wines that they that I find that people tend towards in this market without having to say, you know, if you want to have that wine, you're going to have to pay this amount of money, mm-hmm. which unfortunately is what you see in a lot of markets. Oh, you want to have New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc? Fine. I'm going to charge 20 bucks a glass for it. That's what you're going to do. And I just don't, you know, I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to that. You know, it's when I got to the inn... That was the situation. You know, there was a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that was $25 a glass, and an Australian Shiraz that was $25 a glass, because that's what people were asking for more often than any other variety. And so there was this mentality of, well, if they're going to want it, then we're going to charge for it. And when I got there, I said, you know, there's plenty of people who are coming in telling you how long they've been saving. Their idea of a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is a bottle of Oyster Bay that costs $11 at the store. If they just order a glass of Sauvignon Blanc and they have two glasses and you've never told them, A, how much it costs, or B, what it is, all your, it's, it's just swindling. And it's it, it, it is the antithesis of what I look for in my service. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I took those off and put on a Syrah that was, you know a third of the price that drank like an Australian Shiraz. I put on uh, an Italian white wine, a Greco de Tufo, that had a lot of the similar flavors to the Sauvignon Blanc. But if somebody asked for a glass of Sauvignon Blanc, instead of just bringing it, there had to be a conversation. And that conversation was, actually, we don't have Sauvignon Blanc, but what we do have is a wine that tastes so similar. It's called Greco de Tufo. It's from Benito Correra. You know, it's from this uh, limestone soil. And now you've engaged the guest. It isn't just... A, you know, a question and, and a delivery. Now there's a conversation about the wines that people are asking the most
0: about. And do you find that people are uh, you know eager for those conversations? Because I know so many people get intimidated when they're faced with a wine list or even to order a glass of wine.
1: I I think that there are, you know, when I came into the city, um, I, I really never put something on belongs on my list for that reason. But for people going out to be in a little Washington, like they're looking for that experience and that engagement. Now, some people might not be, but given the opportunity, you know, you've already shown how excited and, you know, it's already an adventure, mm-hmm. so why not continue the adventure? Being in the city, um, I do have a Sauvignon Blanc on the list. It's not a Sancerre, so they from, you know, a French Sauvignon Blanc. Most people just say I have a glass of Sancerre. So although we have Sauvignon Blanc, it's from menetou Salon, which is across the river from Sancerre. Um, it still engages a conversation, but if somebody's just sitting at the bar and says, I'd love a glass of Sauvignon Blanc, we, we have that availability. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what can also intimidate people is not only the knowledge, but the price of things. And so I'm also always super adamant about making sure that somebody sees the price of whatever is is they're having. You know, there's a lot of times that somebody will say, well, I'll just pick a mid-range wine. Well, a mid-range wine for our restaurant is $1,000. So, you know, we have almost, I'd say... 90% of our list is, you know, under, well, I'd say 80% of the list is under $250. However, the median price, when you're looking at it, can be pretty high. Let's say it's even $200. Mm-hmm. And $200 is not a median price for most people. It would maybe be 80 or 90 maybe even 50 So instead of assuming that we know what they mean, my mentality is you always take the next step to ensure the guest knows you care about them.
0: So Jennifer, the last uh, few minutes here, what I wanted to ask you about goes to the heart of the environment in restaurants. Um, you know, there's there have been so many headlines about uh, sexual harassment uh, in the restaurant industry, and then this week, the Wall Street Journal published a story. I don't know if you saw it, the dark side of the I restaurant world. I did, yeah, world, I saw it yesterday. Uh, which you know was was you know very upsetting, I thought. So uh, how do you make sure that, you know, as general manager, how do you make sure that the environment in the restaurant uh, is a safe one? And how also do you make sure uh, that the people who are working for you, uh, you know, manage their their careers and take time for self-care? So that they aren't being stressed out uh, by by whatever uh, their job entails?
1: Well, we try very hard to be sure that every person has a work-life balance, uh, That and that comes from our owner, Hakana Long. That comes from the top down. Um, you know, there are many situations where a general manager, or assistant general manager ever might be, you know, like they talked about in the, in the Wall Street Journal article, the amount of time you spend at work becomes a badge of honor. Well, I've been there for 70 hours this week. I worked, you know, 60 days in a row. I've been there. You know, Mm -hmm. I, when I opened for Quinn, I worked 65 days straight and it it was something I had to do to give my staff time off. Mm -hmm. I decided to take that on the chin. Um, You know, luckily I I have that endurance and I have that fortitude. Now mentally, it wears on you and it wears on you terribly. Um, I know by the time I had days off, I, I was almost incapable of rational thought. I was just, I had never had the chance to shut down. I had never had the chance to really recoup from the day before. Mentally, I didn't have the time to really put all of the, the things in place that needed to be done to have clarity. And of course, it affected how I was on the floor. It affected my temper. It affected my views. It attempted my, uh, it, it affected, you know, my ability to have patience with the staff and with the guests. And there are a lot of times where you know that's something that owners are asking for. They're they're not thinking about how it affects the the, the guests. They're not necessarily thinking how it affects the staff. All they're thinking about is they want to squeeze the last that they want to squeeze as much time out of you as possible. And where Hakan really changes from that is you know he's like you work a fifty hour a week. That's it. And if you can't get your job done in 50 hours, then you need to think about what you need to change to get it done. I don't, you know, as soon as one of my managers hits 10 hours, I immediately say to them, go home. If they decide they want to stay for another half an hour or an hour because um, because they have a guest that they want to attend to or they see it's a little busier and they want to stay a bit longer, I'm not going to tell them they have to leave. But I'm always going to make it clear that... You have you have fulfilled you have fulfilled the expectation. You may now be on your way. Um, I I take it on the chin a little more personally because again, like I you know I I want my I not only want my management team to feel appreciated and feel and know that they are being respected both for their job and for their lives outside of their job. But I believe if I'm not willing or able to do that for them, then the staff sees that as well, the, mm-hmm. the, the line staff. And with our servers and with our you know, people in the kitchen, I from the beginning, from the first day somebody walks in, not only is it made very clear that sexual harassment and harassment of any kind will never be tolerated, And I have had situations where, you know, someone has been accused of sexual harassment, it's been corroborated by somebody else, no matter how many times they say, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I'm sorry, I I can't have that environment here. And unfortunately, I, I have had times where, you know, somebody has sworn up and down, they didn't do what somebody saw them do. And then they end up waiting outside for the person who, who, um, who accused them and proving that they you know, were in fact harassing them. Mm-hmm. So we have to take everything seriously the first time. There can't be the idea that someone is making something up. Because that's what so many people want to go towards because they don't want to take the follow-up they don't want to take the time to flesh out the situation and you have to be willing to do that every step of the way you have to be willing not only to believe the person who is accusing but you have to take the time to speak to the person who has been accused you have to be sure to speak to people who are in the in you know who are in the restaurant where there are other things that you didn't know about um, you know we get busy we 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 miss things sometimes, and I tell the staff over and over again, I can remedy a situation almost every time, but you have to tell me. You have to make me aware of it. Then I will take all of the necessary steps in order to justify the the situation. Um, I try to be sure that if there are signs that somebody is overworked or exhausted, you know, For a living, we have to focus on feelings. And very often people who work in restaurants, especially people who work in the front of the house, are are empaths. They absorb people's feelings and their emotions. Mm -hmm. And if they get yelled at by one person, they're going to turn around and yell at somebody else. Mm. And so I try to make it clear that the conversations we have are respectful. I sometimes lose my temper. I sometimes, you know, raise my voice. But if that happens, I always go back to that person and say, I'm sorry. That was not the way to, to, to talk about that. That was not the fashion in which I should have spoken to you. That was a circumstance that was not personal. But again, it should not have happened. And I am very well known for doing that. But with my staff, I also want them to know that you know I come from, from being a server. I'm not a manager. I'm a fancy waitress. That's all I am. I'm a waitress in a suit. I do every single thing that the staff does and I have to prove to them that I'm willing to do anything. I'll take a station. Of course, I'm you know running food and bussing tables and making drinks and pouring wine and everything else. But what I think becomes the most important part about being a general manager is you have to be the example that you hope people aspire to be. And I was very lucky when we reopened Mirabelle because I did not have to put out an ad for one person in the front of the house. Mm-hmm. Either people came back, they stayed, or they followed from other restaurants. We have, you know, people come, we just have a bartender that we hired, and she said one of the reasons she wanted to work here is because she wanted to work for me. She wanted to get to see what it was like. Mm-hmm. Um, and our lead bartender, Zach Faden, when people ask him how it is to work with me, he always says the same thing. You're either going to get better or you're going to leave. That's it. She does not She does not wane on her expectations, but I will do anything I can to help somebody get there. And in turn, I expect everyone on my team and that are my teammates, to do the same thing for the person next to them.
0: Well, Jennifer, this has been such an education and such an enjoyable uh, discussion. I've dined at Mirabelle a number of times. It is a beautiful restaurant. Uh, I encourage Everyone uh, to make their reservations, especially over the holidays, where I understand you have some special uh, menus going uh, for the holidays.
1: Yes, we're open for Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving we are open from 11 until 5, Mm -hmm. and then uh, we are open for Christmas Eve and then, of course, New Year's Eve.
0: That sounds wonderful. So, thank you again for uh, joining me. Uh, Again, I'm Charlene Giannetti, editor of Woman Around Town, and we have been speaking with Jennifer Knowles, who is the general manager and beverage director for Mirabelle Restaurant here in Washington, D.C.
1: Charlene, thank you so very, very much for having me.
0: Thank you, and I I will see you on my next visit to your restaurant.
1: Good. I greatly look forward to it. Okay. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye.